Welcome to the Eastern Approaches podcast, hosted by me, Alex Thompson. And once again, I'm joined by Gevorg Virats. But this time, Gevorg, we're on your home turf. We're in one of your two native countries, we could say. Armenia, which is your ethnic native home. Georgia is your home of residence and upbringing. And there's lots and lots of Armenians in Georgia too, so the two countries are not just neighbours, but the populations are related. Uh, why are we here, first of all? Well, we have welcomed a very interesting guest that's come to Armenia uh, from the distant Trinidad and Tobago, and uh, that is Sheikh Imran Hussein, whom you have interviewed, I believe, uh, just a little while ago in Exeter. And here he is, he's landed in Yerevan with a message of what Quranic Islam actually has to say to Eastern Christian nations and he's intending to bring, shall we say, historic Islam and historic Christianity closer together by doing so. Whenever we say historic Islam and historic Christianity I think there's uh, something that should be recognized, and, and that is that historically Islam and Christianity did not represent Islam and Christianity fairly. So uh, I would rather speak about the theological concept of Islam and the theological concept of Christianity, because as uh, famously uh, Mahatma Gandhi was asked about the English Christianity, he said it was a good idea, would be a good or idea. Or would be a good idea. Uh, similarly, uh, Christianity uh, on, on these lands and Islam in their lands would be a very good idea if uh, applied properly, as it were. Well, the inspiration for this podcast came from a subscriber to my Telegram channel, also named Eastern Approaches, Bluey, who wrote today when I had updated subscribers that I was in Armenia that it would be good to get a guide to the country for those considering visiting Armenia. So we decided to do, shall we say, an upmarket tour guide or a historically informed tour guide to these two countries which are Christian outliers in the Near East which otherwise is Islamic, south of the chain of the Great Caucasus Mountains. So south of the Russian border, they are the only two Christian nations, although there are sub-national Christian churches scattered further south in the Middle East in parts of Turkey and Iran and Iraq and the Levant, uh, historic Middle Eastern Christianity. Uh, But you Armenians and Georgians actually retained your statehood. And that's what we're going to go into first, because the religion is the bedrock of these two nations' identity. In a few minutes, and this is quite a big task for you, Gevorg, what are the comparisons and contrasts between Armenian Christianity and Georgian Christianity? Before going into the religious aspect of the worldview of these peoples, I would like to vaguely state that Georgia, even though it is neighboring Armenia right in the same region, it's situated in the Caucasus, uh, is is more of a eastern fringe of Europe, whereas Armenia is northwestern fringe of Asia. And it is fascinating to observe it, 
because the countries are similar in very many ways. They, uh, the ethos within the countries is similar somewhat. But if you look at the architecture, the architecture is certainly similar. Uh, Georgia is uh, bigger on the musical tradition of singing and Armenia is bigger on the architecture and everything to do with uh, with the stone masonry, uh, there are more artisans here in Armenia than there would be in Georgia. However, uh, these countries, they're not mere cultures and countries, they're continents joined together in one region, the fringes of two big continents. Often, certainly in the Soviet and Russian tradition, it was said that there were, am I right to say that they said, they usually said there was about a dozen civilizations in world history, and the big debate among the Slavs was, are we part of one civilization called Christendom, or do we form our own uh, civilization called Slavic or Eastern Christendom? Here in the Caucasus, you've got something similar because both the Armenians and the Georgians, very unusually in the world, have an alphabet each, all of their own. And in many other ways, they could be said to be Christian civilizations, not just Christian countries. Uh, you're very correct in asserting that. And also, uh, the Georgians are bigger on the alphabet because uh, they, well, the Armenians uh, love their alphabet too. But the Georgians speak about it more. They say that uh, there are only 14 unique scripts in the world and Georgian and Armenian, for that matter, are, are one of them, one of the 14. Now, the Georgian uh, mainline religion is Eastern Orthodoxy, Byzantine Eastern Orthodoxy that is applied uh, in the Georgian culture and uh, adapted to the Georgian culture. So the prayers are not in Greek, but in Georgian. And the texts, theological texts that the Georgian church produces rather scarcely, I would say, as an Armenian, but, uh, but uh, they do produce texts that are uh, uniquely Georgian in many ways, although, uh, and I'm, I'm a proponent of, of, of the uniqueness of every nation, although I must say that the framework of Eastern Orthodoxy is such that it's a big brotherhood, as it were, and within, within that always the dominant part of, of, of the brotherhood dictates the thoughts and yes. the worldview in many ways. You have a, a patriarch of patriarchs, a world patriarch, in, in, in Constantinople, currently Bartholomew. The accusation of many in this region is that, he's, that he's been hijacked by the CIA, or his institution has, and he gives his blessing to the splitting off of other Eastern Orthodox churches wherever a pro-Russian part of an Orthodox country has lost territory to a pro-Western part. Uh, these are the political accusations and this is the political side of things. On the other hand, we could say that the Russian church is the biggest church and therefore is the dominant church within the Orthodox Brotherhood. They've got the most money, they've got the most power and they've got the most influence within the Orthodox Brotherhood. So their influence on the Georgian church is quite significant. Although the Georgians are very, very proud of having res uh, obtained autocephaly, so self-governance, very, very early on only a couple of centuries after their conversion, and we should have given the dates. It's very early in the 4th century AD that first Armenia and then Georgia became Christian nations. Uh, correct. The Armenian state has become Christian in 301, and there isn't a thousand before 300. It's, it's simply 301, which some people don't believe, Alex, because they, they think you know, there's no history. 
before the thousands and knowing words, but uh, there is actually history before that. And in Georgia was uh, 314. Uh, sometimes it's debated, but... Uh, but both well, well before Constantine in Rome. Oh, definitely, definitely, because uh, Constantine uh, only uh, provisionally allowed Christianity to be professed in, in the uh, Roman Empire, whereas it never became the state religion in the Roman Empire. Uh, Christianity has become the state religion only under Theodosius, the emperor, in 390. And in doing that, the Byzantine Empire ruled out all the other versions of yes, Christianity. Yes, you had to be a Greek Christian in a theological sense, not necessarily linguistic, but you had to accept the very new, as they then were, conciliar declarations on the nature of Christ. Otherwise you were banned. Yes, Greek, Nicene, and subsequently Chalcedonian. And uh, there, there were other things uh, that uh, came with it. But this so, is the emperor, by the way, who got shoved out of Milan Cathedral by Archbishop Ambrosius, wasn't it? Yes, yes, Ambrose, the great Ambrose. He, he told him off severely for not adhering to, to Christianity. But, but uh, well, of course, he was publicly declaring himself to be a Christian, but then he was, uh, he was persecuting the other Christians, which, which wasn't a good thing to do for anyone ever, let alone the person that is in the emperor of the Christian uh, Oikumeni, or the, the world, the universe that they call themselves. But what's crucial here is that Georgia was in this setup you're describing. It was part of, some people would say, imperial Eastern Christianity, and Armenia wasn't. No, Alex. The fact uh, of the situation here is slightly different. Georgia was initially a part of the Oriental Brotherhood. Uh -huh, so Georgia, the non-Eastern Orthodox churches that, who hadn't signed up to the supremacy of Byzantium. That's right. Uh, the Armenians, the Georgians, and the Albanian church. And the Albanian church is the church of the nation that existed where modern-day Azerbaijan is located. Yeah, nothing to do with Balkan Albania except a coincidence of name. Albania in Latin just means white country or pale country. So you had a, a Balkan Albania and you had a Caucasian Albania. Exactly. And the Caucasian Albanians were also Christian. Their church was a part of the Oriental Orthodox Brotherhood. And uh, that brotherhood was defined by their freedom of self-expression and self uh, uh, manifestation as a, as a church because they did not have to adhere to the same theology, all of them. And this is also true if we look further south and west of the Copts and the Tewahedo church in Ethiopia, isn't it? Those are the two other sizable Christian churches in the, in the crucible lands of Christianity that never uh, joined Byzantium. Uh, correct, and also the Syrian Malankara church in India, and there's a Syrian church that's often referred to as the Jacobite Church. Now, I, I, I know some of the Syrian believers would refuse to bear their name because they're, they're a Jesusite church, not a Jacobite church. They follow Jesus Christ in, in, in their teachings. But, uh, yeah, they, they are referred to as Jacobites, and, and they are also part of the Oriental Orthodox Brotherhood. And I would say that in this brotherhood, some of the churches have saints that within the framework of the other churches are anathemized. For instance, in the Coptic church, you have a saint called Severus that is anathemized in the Armenian church. And anathemized means cursed, basically, for, 
you know, to, to, to use the basic English that I'm able to use. So the idea here is that you do not have to believe the identical creed that your other sister church believes. You understand each other and respect each other based on who you are, not based on whether you're like me or not. That's the that's the framework of the Oriental Orthodox uh, Church. Just to review that for people who are new to this, Oriental Orthodox is a looser or more uh, more umbrella term for churches in this part of the world, east of Greece, shall we say, or south of Greece, um, which are not part of the tighter communion known as the Eastern Orthodox. And Georgia was initially a part of this brotherhood. In the seventh century, of course, Georgia has has changed its allegiance because of many political reasons, because uh, the pillar of the Oriental Orthodoxy was, of course, Armenia and Armenia's statehood, because it was the bigger state, uh, uh, the, the bigger uh, player, as it were, in, in, in this part of the world, although, of course, the Egyptians and the Ethiopians and some of the others, that were uh, a lot more prominent in their regions than Armenia was in this region. But then Armenia lost its statehood, to the Persian, to uh, to the Persian and Greek Byzantine inv- invasions, Armenia was par- partitioned. And you know we couldn't do this in a nutshell, but Armenia and Georgia, at the time we talk about the accepting of Christianity in the fourth century AD, they were both kingdoms, although not quite contiguous with the modern territories bearing that name. But after that time, there were periods when they were petty kingdoms covering small parts of the territory, but ruled by an ethnic Armenian or, or ethnic Georgian king. There were also times of completely being subsumed into uh, Persian and then Islamic, so Persian pre-Islamic and then Islamic empires, then Mongol empires, and there were of course much later times of Russian rule, and interspersed with these were brief periods of regaining of independence, so for much of the last 1700 years both the Armenian and the Georgian people have been uh, church-going Christian but under uh, a very different kind of Christian or totally non-Christian rule. Uh, very true that, Alex, but I, I, I want to summarize this uh, story in a nutshell for those who are interested to just understand and identify the difference. Basically, there was this one region with little kingdoms, and Georgia is one of those kingdoms, and Armenia and Albania, they were, they were all part of the Oriental Brotherhood initially, but then when Armenia became weaker, the Georgians have decided that they could better serve the interest of the Georgian people within the framework of the Eastern Orthodox Brotherhood, that is the Byzantine Orthodox. So they took a Greek turn. They did take a Greek turn. And although I lived in Georgia and was a friend of yours from that time onwards, I wasn't aware until recently when a Dutchman asked me about it and you helped me research it, that uh, the converter, the evangelist of Georgia, St. Nino, was not said in contemporary records to have uh, been uh, Greek or Cappadocian or Byzantine. That came later, as you told me. Originally, it was fairly well accepted that it was a woman who had... Was it an Armenian grandmother or an Armenian aunt in Jerusalem? Uh, well, she, uh, she, had, she was adopted by an Armenian lady who, who brought her up. Uh, but uh, that is that is a, well, it is recognized by the Georgian scholars and by the others as well that this this is this is the case and Saint Nino uh, did speak the Armenian language, but when we see this like this region the Caucasus it's become Christian, 
And of course, for our listeners, uh, dear friends, you need to understand that the times that we're talking about are so early on. That's before before Rome becoming Christian as a whole. The kind and of, way before the rise of Islam, three absolutely. centuries before. The kind of Christianity that came here was not very much different to uh, the Christianity of the Arameans, the Syrians. I mean, these are the immediate neighbors of the Jews and the first converts other than Jewish Christians themselves. Precisely. So the idea is that the Christians of this region, they're the closest thing to Judaism in the non-Jewish world. There is even a serious suggestion, isn't there, that a lot of those who fled into the mountains of Ararat, Urartu is the very, very old prehistoric name, but by this time it was Ararat, may have been Jews. Who, who infused themselves into the, particularly the Armenian population. Both uh, the Jewish tradition and the Armenian tradition, as well as the Persian tradition and the Georgian tradition testify to it. So uh, it is beyond doubt that there were significant Jewish populations in the Armenian highland and in Georgia. Stereotypically Jews and Armenians and Georgians all look the same, don't they, with the same skin tone and the same prominent noses? Well, uh, the north of the Middle East, the people of the north of, of the Middle East all look the same anyway, more or less. Uh, there are slight differences uh, known to the anthropologists and to the local populations because we're often able, able to tell. Uh, which person belongs to which uh, ethnic group. It's a bit like the Irish managing to sort out who the Catholics and the Protestants are by sight if they're trained. That's, that's correct. But, but you get that in this region. You, you, you learn these things. And if you're able to appreciate these differences, you actually indulge in it. Because if you're able to understand that that person comes from that particular region and you know something about that region, you can talk about that with... with and For you, example, you can the, make the, friends. The, the taller and paler skinned people who gave their name in the German 19th century, I think, uh, scholarly tradition to this idea of Caucasian as the pure origin, supposedly. Uh, these people come from the, the high mountains of the northern slopes of Georgia, the highest slopes bordering the Russian North Caucasus, uh, areas like Khefsureti. They were you know, indistinguishable from pasty northern Europeans. The issue of ethnogenesis is very complicated, Alex, especially in the Caucasian mountains where you have at least 400 different ethnic units. And you're not making that up. Linguists know this. I mean, you were talking about the visible, the visual similarity of these peoples and the religious similarities between them. But if we take Armenia, Georgia, okay, Azerbaijan has a population shift much, much later. But today it's a Turkic language. But Armenia is an ethno, is an Indo-European language of its own branch. That's correct. Like Albanian and Greek, it's one of a kind, but it's Indo-European. Um, Georgian, of course, is the biggest representative of one of the four native language families, entire language families in the Caucasus. You've also got speakers of Semitic languages here. Well, we have some speakers of uh, Semitic languages, namely the Assyrians who live here in Armenia. There are several Assyrian villages. And they learn Aramaic at their, at, 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 as, as a part of their curriculum. And of course, uh, there are these Jewish communities here that uh, speak uh, Hebrew as, as, as their language, and that's a Semitic language too. But uh, I, was, I was trying to portray this movement, uh, civilizational growth, as it were. Yeah. Armenia was able to continue within its own framework or I would say maybe a little more original framework uh, 
uh, independent from the imperial kind of Christianity. It's a highland, and we can't go into the depths of Old Testament history and prehistory, but if we summarize what's become Armenia, the, the uh, plateau um, north of the rivers, the Euphrates, where, where it, Armenia is, has always been a place where people have sought refuge from the oppressive periods of great civilizations in the more populous lowlands to the south, Mesopotamia and the Levant. Whereas the Georgians, they, uh, in, uh, they've become an infusion into the ocean of the European civilization and the European culture by becoming uh, connected to the Byzantine Orthodox tradition. They are genetically distinct, the Georgians. You can see that they've inhabited that area for a very long time and haven't been part of the more recent migrations of peoples around the Black Sea. But, as you say, they joined themselves culturally to what we can call the Greek-led world. Uh, precisely. The idea that uh, the culture in Georgia is European isn't mine. This, this idea is, uh, is, is held by the Georgians themselves, many of them, and also by the Georgian scholars. Well, we're recording this in early July, and on the Saturday, the 1st of July, there was the umpteenth demonstration on the main thoroughfare in Tbilisi, Rustaveli Avenue, with thousands of Georgians saying, we are Europeans, we are Europeans. This has happened almost every year since the fall of communism, and you don't get the equivalent in Armenia. You do not, not at all. And uh, it, isn't, it isn't that the Georgians uh, somehow underestimate their Europeanness themselves, and, and therefore want to establish it by uh, holding these public rallies. Uh, it's 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 the opposite. The Georgians feel that their European belonging was suppressed by uh, the outsiders, and now it is the time for it to thrive. Hence, why they like the Ukrainians and the Estonians like headbutting the Russians. The Armenians haven't chosen that path since independence in 1991. Uh, and this again is another another argument uh, which. Uh, which kind of sh shed some light on the difference between Georgia and Armenia and, and Armenia being Middle Eastern. Because from the Middle Eastern lens, uh, you take uh, whatever comes your way stoically. Yes. Whereas uh, from the European perspective, you take no nonsense. Exactly. Uh, Armenia, of course, is now, because it's uh, the last sliver of territory left since the uh, genocide of 1915, uh, that's all that there is. We call it a Caucasian country, but historically it wasn't called that because it occupied a large swathe of eastern Anatolia. You know, the, well, the, the eastern, so it was very much a, a Middle Eastern, a Near Eastern country in its centre of gravity. Uh, true, and uh, eastern Anatolia is an oxymoron because uh, Anatolia means the east. Of course, Anatolia in Greek, the sunrise. Uh, yes, and Anato eastern Anatolia is, is a, ter a term that's coined to not call that region the Armenian Highland, which it is properly called. So it is the Armenian Highland, it's been known as the Armenian Highland for millennia, not centuries, thousands of years. And oh, the people in this region, except the Turkish government and the Azerbaijani government, they still refer to this area as the Armenian Highland. Because that's, that's, that's how we refer to the territory, we just know what they're called. So. Yes, the Armenian highland, traditionally, it's uh, on the top of the Middle East in the north, 
whereas Georgia is is like an extension of Europe. Yes, it's always been connected to the sea. It's been a littoral, as in T T O R A L, littoral country, with um, a hinterland inland. But Armenia has never been a coastal or lowland country. However, these differences are not appreciated very often by by by, by the outsiders that come in here. Because they think, well, these two small countries are located very near each other, and their food is similar. Therefore, these nations are well. It's it's like conflating the Estonians and Latvians. They were governed as a single province, weren't they? Livonia, but they are of totally different ethnic origins. They happen to be both Lutheran historically, but they're very different peoples. But the Lithuanians aren't Lutheran, and Latvians and the the Latvians and the Lithuanians are mixed up very often. People don't know the difference. The languages are very closely related. Latvian the languages are related, but the faith isn't. The yeah. Lithuanians are the Catholics, and the Latvians, of course, are are, are, are Lutherans. So yes, there are there are instances of this. Historically, we see this, that the people sometimes do not perceive the difference very sharply. But if you're careful, if you're looking at these countries with, with some, some interest, you will find out very soon that these countries belong to different uh, groups, different continents, different civilizations perhaps, although they're very, very, very close to each other. And um, I don't know whether that answered any of your questions, Alex, but we'll let it be it for our first point. I think it does answer the questions because you can find, in principle, the answers to many of travellers' questions today as to what distinguishes Armenia from Georgia and what they have in common. But let's go on to culture because, of course, that's what the travellers come mainly to take in. Um, Armenian music, for reasons that you've just explained, is much closer to Persian than Arabic music. Georgian music is strikingly Eastern, but in a much more recognisably European way, although the harmonies sometimes are quite spare. Quite spare. Uh, triphony is, is very noticeable. It goes all the way back to Strabo, the ancient Greek geographer, who talks about uh, three-part singing in the mountains. Um, food is pretty similar. It's, it's grilled meat paradise, isn't it, the well, Caucasus? Especially, especially Georgia and Armenia, definitely, because Azerbaijan is uh, is a Muslim uh, or nominally Muslim country and they do not appreciate pork very much and uh, are therefore short of pork. Uh, in, uh, but Muslim Caucasians have, have always replicated pork shashlik kebabs by uh, using um, succulent veal which comes out very well in this region. Uh, it does come out very well but the variety is a little bit uh, narrower in Azerbaijan Whereas I personally prefer the Turkish food to what we have uh, in, in, in Georgia. You love your lakmacun, don't you? A Turkish version of pizza. Uh, lakmacun is actually a very old Armenian, Aramaic, Arabic uh, version of pizza that the Turks have mm. taken, basically, and appropriated culturally. Now, now you're being a stereotypical Armenian. Which all, our, all this stuff was ours before the Turks took it. But it's probably true. Well, I'm, I am a stereotypical Armenian. I can uh, testify to the truthfulness of this because the Turks have occurred in this region uh, later than the Lahmacun was invented. Much later, I would say. But uh, looking at the food and the cuisine, of course, the cuisine in Armenia is a lot more Middle Eastern. In Georgia, it's a bit more endemic in many ways because the, the mountainous uh, tribes of which the Georgian nation partly consists, 
they've had their own uh, little cuisines that were peculiar to the, their regions. Very heavy on cottage cheese is Georgian food, which isn't absent in Armenia. Cheese and butter has always been part of the Armenian Highland diet, but Armenia goes much more for bread and meat, doesn't it? Yes. And, and herbs. Uh, the Georgians like spices. Uh, the Georgian food it can come very spicy, whereas uh, the Armenian food is a lot more plain normally, which you would expect in the mountains, on a mountainous plateau. But anyway, uh, setting food aside, well, you've talked about the music a little bit. I would like to also add to what you said, uh, that the Armenian musical culture is very much akin to the historic Middle Eastern musical culture. Sharakan, which is known that the closest Western equivalent is Gregorian plain chant, priests chanting scripture with very little accompaniment or harmony. The word Sharakan comes from the Hebrew word Shir, which is the, the song in Hebrew. And uh, some scholars suggest that there was a continuous tradition in the Armenian religious music that goes all the way back to the Jewish temple, the Temple of Solomon. And for those who read French, you can find out a lot by reading the early 20th century author, Com author Komitas, Komitas Vardapet Vafoul, the teacher Komitas, he was called, who wrote up a lot about Armenian musicology in French. Yes, and he also wrote in German. For, for those who can read German, they can, they can try to find some of his German writings. But the Georgian uh, music is a lot more uh, northern in terms of the Middle East. Spicy again, isn't it? Lots of rhythmic playing on stringed instruments, passionate. I would say more that percussion uh, as well. these spices are simply different. Uh, the Georgian music is certainly diverse. It certainly varies from uh, the eastern part of Georgia to the western part significantly oh, hugely, yeah. to the point of non-recognition. If you only heard the Western Georgian music, you wouldn't recognize that the Eastern Georgian is also... Georgian. Well, Eastern Georgia is, is you know, sedate music played by people on a fairly high plane with Persian influence. So it's, you know, you, you picture a peasant sitting under a tree on a hot, dry afternoon. But Western Georgian music is, is a chaotic, swampy, lowland, uh, Cajun feast, isn't it? The Armenian contemporary uh, street culture is known for a musical genre that's called uh, Rabiz in Armenian. And uh, this is considered to be the lower class kind of music. But this sort of music is also quite interesting and very telling in terms of the, the cultural expression. Oh, yeah. it, to, to a, to a first-time listener who, who hears it in an, a Yerevan taxi, for example, they'll think it's uh, Syrian or Lebanese street songs. It is, but it's, it is also very much akin to, for, for instance, the Portuguese fado, yes. uh, which had very similar origins under the Arabic influence on the Iberian Peninsula. And uh, you can see how this connects, like 21st century Yerevan Street Armenian taxi music, as you say, and the Fado Portuguese from uh, sung by Dulce Pontes. Well, there is a connection. There's, there's the Moorish instrumentation, the oud, and the, the tradition of reflective ballad singing. Yeah. But the oud comes from the Aramaic culture which is Western Semitic Syrian culture, and some, some, some elements of it, because there are different types of Uds, come from the Chaldean culture and goes all the way to, from, uh, to Babylon. So you can see and feel and touch and smell this historical continuum 
in this land. And also people are going to think you're getting carried away with yourself, but having sat in many concerts in both Tbilisi and Yerevan, I can test, attest that you're not. It really does enrapture you and take you back several thousand years. Especially if you're staring at the Mount Ararat here with your Bible open on, on, on Genesis chapter 8, where this mountain or the mountains, uh, mountain plateau is mentioned, and you, you simply comprehend this idea with the kind of music that comes your way. Uh, the, the reason I'm mentioning this, and I'm trying to paint these two worlds in a different ma manner, because they, they're both very worthy of attention. But they need uh, an interested uh, learner, a student that would be interested to know the depth of it, the origins of where things come from. Otherwise, he will not be able to benefit fully from what he encounters. Because, for instance, the Armenian art tradition. The Armenians are not very famous for painters. No, not, not compared with the Georgians, who certainly from the Soviet era onwards are you know, uh, fantastic world-beating visual artists and, and uh, puppeteers and all of, the, all of the visual expressions, really, theatrical, ballet. Uh, the Armenians are no slackers in that regard, but they're merely very good, whereas the Georgians are outstanding. Uh, but uh, there is a deeper layer to this because the Armenian culture has always emphasized things that are internal rather than external. Portable culture, because you never know when the next enemy might come and you, you know, need to take your wealth with you and your cultural wealth as well. So have portable jewellery as a dowry and have miniature art or miniature books as your, as your expression. But, but also um, Armenia, unlike Georgia, is, is a state where you have Matena Daran. Matena Daran is one of the greater libraries in the world that contains ancient manuscripts. We could freely translate Matinadaran as depository because these Armenian monasteries, much more even than Irish monasteries, and that's saying something, they existed largely to propagate book culture, didn't they? So this is what I mean by saying that the focus was on internal culture rather than internal. Now, if any of our listeners uh, have been to Israel, for instance, there they would notice that Jewish cities, where the Jews live, not the Arabs, but, but also the Arabic cities, they're very plain in a way. They're not elaborate. Uh, they're not ornate. Uh, uh, they're, they're straightforward, straight lines, very plain. Gridiron pattern, yes. Uh, Although the temple and the library on the edge of town, and this goes way back in the Near East generally, they're on higher ground with a step, a series of steps up to them, and they're rather more ornate with pillars. And Armenia could easily be kind of an extension of Israel or Lebanon uh, or, or Syria. These, these cultures, this vibe. Very different from Greek or Roman cities where the sumptuousness is right there in, in the downtown area with the amphitheater. But whenever you get to Tbilisi, you'll see that Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia, is an entirely different place. Well, it, it has a European feel for one thing. Uh, also, the architecture in Tbilisi, it is eclectic, it's not, it's not of one mm -hmm. kind, the whole But it, of it is rather dominated by Ottoman style, isn't it? late Ottoman style, with this sort of uh, cream and, uh, and red uh, brick arrangement, Romanesque arches, ornate galleries, wrought iron uh, galleries. Only, only a part of it is dominated by the Ottoman style, but uh, we have uh, a, a huge uh, compound in the center that is entirely German. Marjanishvili, for instance, you would know that, Alex, because you've seen that. 
the, with the Lutheran Church still in it. Well, with the Lutheran Church still in it, and some of the Lutheran churches blown up by Stalin's regime in Georgia. There's an area that is completely uh, Muslim looking and feeling, and and and, and around the bathhouse. Yes, there's a lot of uh, Azerbaijani, Turkish, and Persian influence there. And sadly, there is a very large area of East Central Tbilisi, sort of the the opposite bank from the historic old city centre, which is itself old and venerable, but not as old as historic Tbilisi. And that's Eastern Central area is where the Armenians live, but they're no longer a large majority in those areas and a lot of their large churches have been deliberately uh, neglected if not deliberately denigrated in the last 30 years since independence. Well uh, the most of it happened during the Soviet Union because the Communist Party had a deliberate program of eradicating Christianity and they tried to destroy every church they could and every mosque and every synagogue they could. However with the Armenian population of course uh, with a, in the process of, of the Georgian self-determination, the Georgian people were, 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 were trying to push their boundaries and try to define themselves and their space in their newly independent state. And they felt really heavily victim to chauvinism, didn't they, in the years from about 88 to 95? Well, they were victims of their government's uh, illicit policies and, 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 and some chauvinism. But uh, I would never call the Georgian people chauvinistic. They were just trying to make ends meet at that time. Uh, yes, but the government, of course, did uh, did things at times that could not be explained by anything else other than chauvinism. But uh, thankfully, that's not the policy in Georgia anymore. And Georgia is full of, like, uh, like all mountainous Caucasian countries, full of ethnic minorities. Armenia is right up there with Iceland and Japan as a 98% mono-ethnic very, very unusual in the world. You have a few Kurds, nomadic Kurds on some of the hills here, but that's about it. Well, we've got 150,000 Russians now who have relocated to Yerevan, and we see them everywhere uh, as, as we're walking uh, down these streets in the city. And these Russians are, are, are very comfortable here. No one, no one's chasing them, no one's throwing them. It's not like Tbilisi where you might get some odd looks or some resentful glances if you try to buy things in Russian. Mm. And Yerevan, will, people, people will tolerate that just fine. See, again, this is a difference between the European approach and the Middle Eastern approach. When the Russians have come to Georgia this last time, many of them, what they heard was, was, was a blunt uh, message of, we do not uh, let our properties to the Russians, for instance. Yes. It's got Lithuanian levels of, you know, ruble not welcome, Russian passport well, holders will be the shown Ukrainian, the door. The Ukrainian flag everywhere. Yeah. What did the Armenians do? They welcomed the Russians, but they raised the prices three times. <laughs> Very Middle Eastern. Yeah. And again, stereotypical, because Armenians and Jews have many of the same stereotypes, like uh, canny merchant. And the, Scots, and, and the Scots, Alex. The Scots fall under the, just the same category as the Armenians and the Jews, for those who don't know. But uh, but yes, precisely, you're very correct in saying that. And, and, and this is, again, this is a different civilizational approach. Like, uh, one, one, one part, the European part, says, well, we are, we've got to establish ourselves as, as, as an entity here. And, uh, Grand we, gesture politics. Armenians have never gone for that, have they? They've gone for networking. Whenever the Armenians have gone for grand gesture politics, they've got their, their share of sense thrown in their faces, as it were, because they're a small nation. The, the thing here is different. 
one people are thinking, okay, well, let us try to build our nationhood, and the others are just thinking, well, let us make some money. Yes, I mean, Armenia has a massive diaspora, largely as a result, well, two things, all the, the Muslim conquest and invasions called, caused an Armenian middle-class population to be spread out over important cities like Cairo, Tehran, but latterly, of course, the 1915 genocide, well, it went on for several years, but it started in 1915, that caused a huge North American and French diaspora, above all, and of course Russian. That's another place where a lot of Armenians went. Your forebears were unusual in, going, in ending up in Georgia. And Charles Aznavour, the recently deceased singer, was, was a good example. He, he raised the cost of a whole F-16, didn't he, for the, the Armenian Air Force? Uh, at, and, at, at least five mirages. Five mirages, uh, indeed. Of course, they would be mirages if he was based in France. Yes. Uh, but that, that's what you've done. And so there's been, as with Israel, there's been a policy of getting active young people from the diaspora to come up and either do voluntary service to defend uh, Nagorno-Karabakh uh, or to help build roads in, in uh, out-of-the-way areas. Georgia has recently uh, repaired its previously awful mountain roads, but it's done so through getting loans from European countries largely, hasn't it? Well, uh, there's lots of loans in both countries, but uh, the countries are managed differently, Georgia and Armenia. Georgia follows the European pattern very closely. The Armenians were trying to balance between the Europeans and the Russians and, and, and some others. And now there are more opportunities with it because there is a process of rapprochement that's starting between the Armenians and the Turks, which I'm following very interest. Just, just three interest. days ago, uh, the border, which was very militarized with Russian peacekeepers, was opened, but only to third party, third, nas third country nationals. You, you can't cross with a Turkish or Armenian passport. Yes, but uh, the point is that uh, the drivers that are nationals of another country, uh, the, the, the ones that bring cargo, uh, they would be allowed in, uh, in, in, in both directions. For instance, the Russians could come through Armenia into Turkey and the European uh, trucks could drive into Armenia from, from Turkey. Which, which, which would boost trade. So you could say that Georgia still has two frozen conflicts and of course Russia's recognized the statehood of those two breakaway territories and all of a sudden, although there was a disastrous war for Armenia in September 2020, you could in a sense say that Armenia in the form of Nagorno-Karabakh and the closed border with Turkey, those things falling away, it has almost no frozen conflicts now. Well, the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh is, is a complicated conflict and it's, uh, We've done a whole podcast on it in the past for those who are new to this. It's, uh, it's certainly not frozen, let me put it this way, because there's a dynamic process around it right now. There was a war, and it was a very hot war as, uh, as compared to uh, what happened uh, to Georgia in 2008. The hostilities in 2008 between Russia and Georgia, although it was an invasion of Georgia, and although the Russians have come and uh, entered Georgia all the way up to the capital, almost. The, the conflict only went on seriously for five days. Whereas uh, in, in this last instance, it was 44 days of, of, of active war. And uh, since then, there were instances of shootings and uh, there were instances of uh, casualties. Which, uh, this was all in autumn 2020, and then the prisoners of war became a huge issue. And we should mention the book, Sadistic Pleasures which you have helped to publish. Tell us about the author and the outline of that book. Well, Ashken Arakelian, the author, she uh, interviewed the, the prisoners of war that 
returned from Azerbaijan. Some of the prisoners of war were returned and others were retained in Azerbaijan and are retained there to this day. So it's we, coming up for two years of detention now. That's right. There's, uh, there's a big issue in Armenia uh, regarding this. The Armenians are very concerned. The Prime Minister's nearly had to pay for it with his uh, office, hasn't he? He's, he's, he's on shaky ground at the moment, not least because of this. Well, this is one of the major, major problems here because he's not able to influence the Azerbaijani government and to somehow push the Armenian principle of uh, this non-negotiability of returning of the prisoners of war forward. However, uh, this aside, the conflict isn't frozen because it's, it's dynamically developing in many ways. There's a political side of the conflict that is, on, on the one hand, managed by the Minsk group of OSCE, which Russia does not recognize to exist. And which Britain stayed out of. It was, as with the Ukraine resolution, it was left by Britain to the French and Germans to represent Western Europe. And, and now there is another process that's led by Putin that uh, leaves the whole international law aside and this is again something that Prime Minister Pashinyan here was criticised for because for the first time he dropped the prefix Nagorno, which is Armenia's term or the Soviet era term, and simply talked about resolving Karabakh, which made the Azeris jump for joy. Uh, the Azeris would jump for joy uh, with joy for that, but uh, the problem is that none of the versions of the conflict resolution process can prevail upon another. But there are talks, there are negotiations, and there are shootings. So everything possible is being used to somehow solve this conflict. Something's going to work. Again, a Middle Eastern approach here. Whereas in Georgia, it's frozen. The borders are sealed. The Russians have recognized these breakaway republics. The Georgians don't recognize them. And if you visit them, the Georgians will jail you if you then come to Georgia? Well, the Russians uh, will not allow you. If, as, as a Georgian citizen, you wouldn't be able to go into those areas because uh, the Georgians are prohibited from visiting. But a third country national visiting Abkhazia or South Ossetia, who was then um, foolish or, or unfortunate enough to land in Tbilisi with a passport with that stamp, he would be in hot water. I do not think that it, uh, the water would be as hot as, as it would have been two or three years ago. I think there were some changes and then uh, a little bit more lenience. The Georgian government would probably send that person back wherever he came from rather than uh, detaining him. But Azerbaijan, if you landed in Baku with a, a Nagorno-Karabakh stamp, in which you can't get now since that 2020 war, but a stamp from before that time, you're in for a pretty rough ride in Azerbaijan then, as a Definitely, foreigner. definitely. And uh, Azerbaijan has a policy of not allowing entrance of anyone, of any citizenship, if, if, if the name of the person is Armenian. So uh, Very similar to the old Saudi policy with Jewish names, isn't it? Uh, regardless of your uh, place of birth, as it were, your citizenship, if you if you have an Armenian-sounding name, not necessarily an Armenian name, but because the Armenian uh, names very often, for most times, they end with Ian. Mm. And there are many Persian names that end the same way. And there are others, they're French, uh, that uh, that end their surnames with, with Ian. And if you, if you visit Azerbaijan with a name like that, you'll definitely be asked whether you're Armenian or not, or you have anything to do with the Armenian heritage. And if you, if you look uh, Eastern, they'll say, well, either go back or they'll detain you and wait for someone to uh, bring you out of their custody. 
So uh, this, this isn't a resolved situation, but at least it's dynamic. Now, the interesting part about visiting these places is that both countries are pretty safe, but Armenia as a state is, is, is safer. Uh, the reason why it is safer in Yerevan, well, the crime rate is lower here, but uh, the safety comes from the attitude again, from the culture, from the and, people. And the uh, homogeneity. I mean, before you go any further with you know, the, the comparing Armenia proper and Georgia proper, when I lived in Tbilisi, it was notorious, one of the, the, the most uh, burglary-prone and robbery-prone cities in the world, and one of the reasons for that was Chechen gangs, part of those who'd fled from the Second Chechen War, um, would go around bopping people on the head in stairwells uh, or breaking into their apartments. That's quite apart from native Georgian crime. But you wouldn't have a similar uh, problem here because there's, there's pretty much nobody but Armenians here. Well, the Georgian uh, crime is horrible uh, in terms of uh, its uh, being violating, you know, your personal rights. It's very often robberies, but sometimes it's murders, sometimes it's a rape. Very large numbers of rapes in some Georgian areas, particularly directed at tourists, and they usually get brushed under the carpet, don't they? Uh, that's that's correct. However, that doesn't mean uh, that Georgia is, is not safe or... On the contrary, the, the men are extremely protective of women visitors, uh, except, as usual, if you get into the wrong situation, often through no fault of your own. Well, uh, the problem is that uh, in the last three years, the number of these wrong situations rose dramatically in Georgia. And I, I notice it. I have uh, helped people resolve their situations in Georgia. Uh, and, and that has increased, which I'm very sorry to say, because otherwise Georgia is very, very interesting as a destination for a visit. But, but we, it wouldn't to... be responsible of us to not to mention this, particularly for uh, unaccompanied women travellers. Uh, Armenia, I wouldn't say that Armenia is a 100% safe country. You would get crime here, but the crime in Armenia is, is, is a lot more subtle. Armenia is um, is a society that wants to protect you. What the Armenians can do is they can uh, fool you as a foreigner and charge you tri twice the amount of money for, for something that costs uh, less. But they'll diddle you with a smile on their face and, and maybe shake your hand as well. Uh, or as I found this afternoon to my astonishment in Yerevan, because it's never happened to me in Tbilisi, they might even flash their headlights to let you cross the road. <laughs> Yes, the driving traditions in Armenia and in Georgia are somewhat different, although both are horrible compared to any normal European standard. Uh, well, I, I was just going to say in the British standard, but then I remembered the driving in London. I said, well, I'm I, I very sure. Not necessarily. Well, let's leave L London apart, but the rest of Britain is, is, is very, very safe in terms of uh, the driving standards. and. Armenia and Georgia are both far from that, but Armenia is, is a lot more reasonable than Georgia in terms of driving. Now, uh, Armenia looks uh, looks a bit more Soviet than Georgia. They haven't had a building spree to the same extent, not even in Yerevan, whereas Tbilisi has you know, overnight become a concrete and glass bonanza, hasn't it, in the last 15 years of prosperity. It really started with the Saakashvili government, which of course was very Sorosite, but did manage to attract foreign direct investment to build these hotels and casinos, and super bridges as well, to be honest. Uh, Mikhail Saakashvili was a very good manager, and he was someone with a vision. Uh, 
uh, of a modern Georgia, of a Georgia that's changed, of a Georgia that's progressing. He, he, he did have his shortcomings as a person. You, as a you told ruler. me just last night that when you met him, you saw that his eyes were black, soulless. Uh, blank, I said. Well, yes, he, but uh, it could have been from uh, him being tired, or or maybe it, uh, he, he had used something that he shouldn't have used. This has been known, yes. Uh, and, and, and that had a bearing on his... Uh, he, he was also well known as a, as, as a president who used someone that he shouldn't have used in many situations. He, he is known for that, and uh, he is known for several instances of that. However, he did have a vision of a new Georgia, of a renewed Georgia, and he tried his best to do whatever he could to advance Georgia. And I must say that whenever he was in charge, a cry, a crime in Georgia was punished severely and uh, it was very very safe everywhere in Georgia you could leave your car unlocked and be 100% sure that nothing would have happened to it they were determined to cr to climb to the top of the anti-corruption rankings weren't they and they succeeded they they did stamp out bribing of policemen for example uh, to this day you cannot bribe a policeman in Georgia and, and, and bribes are really unheard of the total you opposite of 20 years ago when I lived there when you could you know by a policeman's silence on anything. True. Now, in Armenia, the change, uh, the political change happened in 2018, where a Saakashvili-style kind of government has come to power. But uh, Often accused of being Sorosites, but that's probably a, a bit too offhand. Well, uh, I haven't witnessed him being a Sorosite in any... Uh, direct uh, situation, so I cannot testify to that. But what I can say is that uh, this government did try to implement some change changes, but the Armenians being Armenian, they still have the relatives and they still have the friends and the big family and the whatever. I call that mafia because that's the Armenian, they're not mafia as, 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 as in the real Italian gangster type mafia. But it's just a big, 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 big family and any Armenian can approach another Armenian and ask for a favor and then get a favor in return. And, and uh, they don't call it corruption here. You don't have, I mean, you've had several overturnings of pro-Russian to pro-European governments in Georgia. A bit less dramatic in Armenia. Armenia hasn't gone the whole Georgian way of going from a presidential republic to a parliamentary or prime ministerial-led republic. The president is still a bit stronger, possibly now that's changed with Pashinyan. But what you do get is recriminations here in Armenia about the two, two of the previous presidents, Levonter Petrosyan and Robert Kocharyan. And their clans, their political clans, or in some cases their, their literal blood clans, are regarded as having failed Armenia. In Petros, Petrosyan's case, isn't it because he needlessly affronted the, the Russians and said we don't need to learn the Russian language here and we want to extricate ourselves from Russian dependency? Uh, it's it's a little bit more complicated than uh, complicated than this uh, because some some people say he was a Russian stooge, Ter Petrosyan, and he deliberately did these things to bring the hatred from the Russians over to Armenia and to pull Armenia back into the Russian. Oh, this will be the dialogue of the discourse of those who say Russia is a dead hand and it wants to prolong frozen conflicts. Uh, well, th there are many different takes on on the situation. I I do not have an opinion. In, in, in these terms. My, my opinions are historically based in, in, in more in, in, in the historical context of development of, of nations and cultures. 
So looking at Georgia and looking at Armenia, I can see that both countries have certainly uh, established themselves in a way, re-established themselves after the fall of the Soviet Union. They're very distinct. Every Each one of them is interesting in, in, in its own unique way, but their paths are different. I would say that the government, or the, 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 the statehood in Armenia is a little bit more vulnerable than the Georgian statehood because Armenia's uh, challenges are greater than than those uh, that come uh, Georgia's way. Georgia cries aloud more about its challenges, but Armenia has, despite the huge support of its uh, diaspora and goodwill from the Middle East and from Russia, it does have more existential challenges in the long term, doesn't it? I mean, the, the, the Greater Turkey Plan, if you involve Azerbaijan and Central Asia, does see the bottom fingernail of, of Armenia, this very narrow corridor, as the only thing standing in the way of a greater Turkey from Greece to China. And Georgia doesn't have any such threat. But uh, there is an interesting trait that the Armenians have, and I think the Welsh among us would uh, share in, the, in this sentiment, as we said in the Celtic podcast of ours, Alex, uh, Emma O'Hid, you know? Still we're, here. We're still here. I mean, things change and these waves come and go and all that, but we're still here and, and God willing we will be here in this area as a people, as a nation, perhaps as, it's some, as something different if we evolve to another consciousness of nationhood. You just mentioned to me a couple of hours ago, hearing from an acquaintance in Gyumri in the West, uh, who said to you, uh, my son has uh, arrived intact from the front line with Azerbaijan and I'm going to slaughter a sheep in thanksgiving. Yes. This is quite common here, isn't it? It is very common here. Of course, he will, he will then call his relatives and his friends to come and join him for the feast. It's, it, it, it sounds biblical almost. The prodigal son. When the Soviets sent their sons off to conscription, didn't they, aged 18, there was a, a sort of a, a parting feast that the men all attended. Yeah, the parting feasts of the Soviets were different. The Russians, they got drunk and, and then hanged around with the, with the ladies and nobody, no one knew whose wife the lady next to him uh, was, and, and, and so forth. Uh, these, uh, these orgies are a different thing. What, what's happening in the Middle East is something else. The, the man uh, who makes the feast, he calls his neighbors for a particular time. They have a, a, a table of different, uh, normally very delicious kinds of food and, and wine. They sit down, they sing songs, they go to the church, they light their candles and ask the priest and pay him to... Uh, to, to do some prayers on their behalf. And in, in Kacheti, the persified east of Georgia, I've even seen racks outside churches where, where the priests will allow pigs to be slaughtered, which surprises people because it's completely out in Judaism and Islam, and it's rather eye-raising for, eyebrow-raising for Christians too, but it's a well, local adaptation. Uh, in Armenia, that would not be possible. You cannot offer uh, a pig in a sacrifice here in Armenia, although the Armenian tradition of Matar or what we call the sacrifice is not understood as, as, uh, as, as a sacrifice to God necessarily, but it's uh, it's it's giving something back to the other people, as as a sign of gratitude to God. So you yes. you, you slaughter this. This, this, is a, this is a big part of, of manhood, isn't it? In the Caucasus, is that you don't hoard what you have, that you're generous with your peers and to, if you have them, your underlings as well. True. I mean, you you have to be generous, but not it's it's not uh, the notion of being generous that's primary. What's primary is being grateful. If you're grateful, 
then if you look for an expre expression of your gratitude and this is one way to express your gratitude someone else would maybe go and help uh, an orphanage and another person would go and help the hospital and th there are many instances of that and that is understood to be the sacrifice as well but uh, the traditional way the historic way because uh, here in the mountains people are often short of food well short uh, you, you, you just they don't, don't have, have a very varied diet. That's right. Uh, it's their own vegetable patch, uh, their own livestock, and that's about it. Uh, that's 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 correct. So uh, people then delighted in sharing food with each other, especially sweets, which of course this being a, the Middle East, yes, are a particular speciality. Yes, so uh, it's 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 interesting and. If there are any further questions from our uh, audience uh, that they want to direct towards us, uh, they're more than welcome to do so. I'd be uh, glad to answer the more interesting ones among these questions uh, for those who want to visit these countries and see something for themselves. Let's just, in closing then, give one insider's tip for each country. Shall we choose, outside Tbilisi and outside Yerevan, one delightful spectacular area of natural beauty in which both countries abound which is less well known i mean in georgia the very well known one is the road that goes north to russia called the military highway and in armenia i suppose the, the big draw is lake sevan in the east of the country if we exclude those ones which in the guidebooks are the number one must sees where are the delightful out of the way country areas with hills and water okay Georgia has got a wonderful region, a fascinating region that is not really known to many tourists. It's called Samtre Javacheti. S-A-M-T-S-K-H-E hyphen J-A-V-A-K-H-E-T-I. The population of that region is uh, mixed. It has it has a sizable Armenian minority. It has it has a Georgian. Uh, a proportion of ethnic Georgian population, which is about 45%. And they had this Turkish tribe there, the Meschetians, didn't uh, they? They did have the Meschetians, but they also have the Greeks living Stalin there. Stalin deported the Meschetians, as, along with all the other Muslim peoples in the way of the, the Nazis. Yes, and this is something that the people who will go to Samsadhejavacheti will discover. What's interesting there is, uh, well, first of all, the mountains there are gorgeous. They're plateau kind of mountains. Yes. And when you go up to those mountains, you'll be able to see that, and there, there are towns and cities uh, there. It's not, it's not that you'll have to climb in the wild somewhere. No, it's, 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 it's there's, a, for, there's a town of Ninotsminda, for instance. If you go there, uh, to that town, you will see a sky that is not seen anywhere in that I was going region. to mention the sky because it's azure. And the mountains are beneath it because they're not ultra high or jagged as they would be in the High Caucasus. So you can actually see a proper uh, lurid blue sky. It's 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 the and the town the is Ninotsminda. That's N I N O T S M I N D A. And it's the largest horizon of the sky that you can see because in the mountains normally you're hindered, but if you go there you're not hindered. You, wherever you look, and in the, at that night it's it's fascinatingly beautiful it's amazing and you're tripping over archaeology wherever you go there aren't you oh yes the archaeological sites that that are found in that area well first of all right next to that area and on the way to that area from Polisi 
we we have a place where uh, well we in Georgia say that the wine originated there. It's it's the first kvebri, and that's the big uh, jar for the wine, wine vats, making. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, that was ever found in the world, and that's eight thousand years old. Huge clay jars that were buried in the soil to keep the wine cool. Well, and uh, to make the wine. And to ferment wine, it, yes. Yes, the, the, the process of fermentation went 8, on. 8,000 people heard that right. And the Georgian Minister of Agriculture, Ministry of Agriculture, has traced something like 150 native varieties of grape. Alex, uh, we have almost 430 uh, native varieties of grapes in uh, Georgia. And Samtskhe uh, Javacheti, the region that I mentioned, does not have many of them because it's it's a mountainous area. I think it's only 26 varieties that originate from Santa Diabacheti. And the word for wine is Rvino in Georgian, Gini in Mingrelian, sorry, in Armenian, uh, and I think Gini also in Mingrelian. So uh, it looks like the word was borrowed into Greek and Latin from the Caucasus. From the Caucasus, definitely. But what I was going to say is that the uh, types of wine, the sorts of wine that you can find in Samtskhe Javacheti, they are unique. They're nothing like you'd find in other regions of Georgia, let alone the rest of the world. They're they're very, very unique because they're high-altitude yes. kind of wine. If you, if you stop along the tourist trail in Kacheti, in the east of Georgia, every babushka is going to run out and say, try my homemade wine, and it's basically vinegar. But this is not going to be the case in Samtskhe Javacheti. Uh, no, it it won't be the case in Samtskhe Javacheti, and and it won't be the uh, case in Raja in the north uh, either, because these northern areas, mountain air, air, mountainous areas, where they grow wine, they have a technology of making it light, but very delicious and very interesting, very rich. And they train the vines up tree trunks, don't they? That's the traditional Caucasian method of uh, viniculture. Uh, there are there are several. Uh, ways of growing wine. You and your neighbour have got into it recently, uh, I know. Yes, I, I simply do not want to elaborate on that too much. Well, we're giving for, people a taster. For, for, for the people to come and see themselves, for, for themselves. But yes, some, in, uh, there's, a, there's a culture that's called Magalari in Georgia, and, and, and what they do is they grow vine right near a tree. But the, you have to know which kind of trees. Not every tree would uh, would mm. cohabitate with with the vine well, but but then the vine the vine grows onto a tree, and you basically ha- can have uh, a tree that uh, that is not fruit bearing, and and then you ha- you could have uh, grapes hanging from it, and it, it looks beautiful, and and also the grapes uh, that come from it are a lot a lot healthier themselves uh, the, the the vine is protected by the tree and the their immune system somehow co- coordinates their uh, their life cycles and uh, the vine I saw a vine that's uh, 400 years old grow, growing on a tree which isn't the case in, many in symbiosis with the same tree for 400 years yes yeah. yes and that was in Samsung so uh, the, yes that area is underappreciated and uh, I think it's fascinating in all aspects it's got one of the most beautiful lakes there is the lake called Paravani in Georgian it's it's a mountainous lake with very cold water with very delicious fish and there's a fish restaurant there that could serve that fish freshly cooked for you I, I like the vibe the feel there it's basic it's plain mm-hmm. but if you if you kind but of the staple out there is potatoes isn't it which is rare yes. for the rest of the Caucasus yes but if you look at look at the history if you ponder 
over the history of the region. If you try to compare and understand that region and other regions, you'll you'll definitely benefit from it immensely. And now coming to Armenia, I would say that one region, if you're going to visit Armenia, that the, the one uh, underappreciated region that um, you should definitely visit is the south of Armenia. You should go to the area called Sunik. That's the bottom province. The provinces in Armenia are called Mars, M-A-R-Z, yes. and the bottom one is Sunik, S-Y-U-N-I-K, and that's the long, thin corridor going down to the Persian border. Uh, that area, uh, if you go to the town of Meghri, you'll find there a church with original frescoes, which are very rare for the Armenian church. The Armenian churches do not have a great tradition of any any fresco paintings because the religion is such and the theology of the Armenian church is such that uh, we view uh, these frescoes as a Western Byzantine influence a As with instrumentation in worship, didn't really appear till the 19th century. Uh, yes, uh, and, and uh, uh, the, this is the reason why the uh, church in Meghri is, is, is special because those frescoes there they're descriptive of history, of the Armenian history. So if you go there and you look at, at, at this a small but very This is a border church. town, it's right on the Iranian border, isn't it? It is. Agarak is, is a small town that's right at the border, and Meghri is very, I think it's only, what, five or six miles apart from Agarak. Agarak. So it's, it's, it's not far away at all. But it's, it's worth going there, because the area there also, it's... Look, Armenia is, 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 is the interior of the Armenian highland, to the modern-day Armenia. And it's very dry as a country uh, because it's uh, surrounded by the mountains and it's... Uh, but up there you've got a rain trap, haven't you? It, it's quite lush. And in fact, Goris, or in local dialect, I think it's Kudis, isn't it? It's on the, on the more or less on the Nagorno-Karabakh border, is the, is the provincial capital. And that is pretty lush and rainy in Alex. summer. The town of Meghri is interestingly surrounded by the mountains there in such a way that the climate in Meghri and the territories belonging to that town uh, of Meghri is subtropical. You can grow, the, the inhabitants of Meghri, they grow bananas. They only grow small. They don't grow full-blown, big, yellow, nice bananas. They're small, but they still grow there. Which is which is unbelievable. They should try avocados. Armenia. That would be pretty lucrative. Well, uh, let us let us go and tell them that they should try avocados. They do kiwi, uh, that they do. But it's 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 simply very very interesting to find such a place in 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 such environment. Melons are also big across the Caucasus, but they are of course grown in drier areas better because they become more. Well, sweeter that way. Well, and speaking of, the, of these fruits, uh, the original Latin name for the apricot is Prunus Armenica, which, which is the Armenian plum. And uh, the reason for that is that the Romans, the Roman legionaries, they have encountered apricot for the first time in their, in their experience in Armenia. It's still synonymous with Armenia, isn't it? Well, uh, the apricot is, 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 is very close to every Armenian's heart because the musical instrument, the duduk, uh, which... That's uh, the mournful wood instrument played uh, by the late Jivan Gasparian and 
increasingly well known in the West through film soundtracks and the Paul McCartney song yes. as well. Yes, for if someone's watched The Gladiator, uh, that's the instrument used in that film. Uh, that's made from uh, from the apricot tree, and uh, the Armenians have, have a national sentiment about this instrument. Oh, we, you and I stumbled across a hillside funeral once where it was being played. Oh, you can hear it played everywhere in this country. Every single village or town would have someone who plays the uh, this instrument, and, and many other instruments as well. But uh, going to the south uh, of Armenia, uh, discovering these huge humongous mountains and, and, and its valleys and fresh water it's 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 an, an experience that you would not believe until you go and see yeah. it and the the Sunik locals are really tough cookies even by Caucasian standards aren't they they are the, 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 the alpha men and alpha women shall I put it that way <laughs> In their respective spheres, and it's very gender separated in a traditional way, they really can run their lives very well down there. They're friendly though, don't be put uh, put away by this alpha. uh, Unless you come in an Azerbaijani uniform, you'll be welcome. That's right, that's right. And uh, after this peace, God willing, then even the Azeri soldiers will be welcomed there if they're only temporary visitors. And even the, the province to the north, which you have to pass through to get to Sunik, the province of Vyots Dzor, is very interesting. The name ominously means the Vale of Woe, doesn't it? I think that's to do with deportations in the past. But that too has got this more verdant, um, hilly topography to it with, with hidden valleys. Well, the best Armenian wine comes from that area. The Armenian system of education, the Armenian classical system of education, meaning the 5th century and onwards, uh, comes from that area, or starts, originates in that area with a... Is, what's the big monastery there? Is it Noravank? Uh, well, Noravank is one uh, one monastery that is big, but uh, uh, the university that was uh, very famous back in the day was called Gladzor. Yes. And that Gladzor University produced great, great scholars and the school uh, that uh, kept the Armenian church intact in many ways. This was when you when you were between capital cities, because Armenia's had 12, and some have fallen victim to earthquakes and some to Mongol hordes. And then and, and, and some, some, some others. Anyway, the region is very interesting. If you'd like to learn more about it, uh, do go to the other resources that are available and of course the books that are available on the subject but I think uh, seeing once is, is, is better than hearing a hundred times and with that although uh, hearing a hundred times would do you good too uh, hence this podcast uh, so I do wish all of our audience a very good day and many happy travels and uh, and a lot of interest that they could cherish in their lives and uh, use for their own benefit. It will certainly enrich your life visiting the Caucasus in ways that you perhaps couldn't imagine. So join us again soon for the Eastern Approaches podcast because while I'm with Gevorg I'm sure that we'll be recording more episodes.